Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use and affordable way to screen print, no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsion or coat a screen. All you need is your design, and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speedball Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. The small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's two favorite tools are his Potatsuwaro Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josoi Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it. These tools speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imclean's.com and find your new favorite tool and keep on carving. My guest this week is John Hitchcock, a Kiowa Comanche artist and professor of art and associate dean of arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We talk about his early childhood influences, learning about color and perspective from his grandmother's rose garden, how he developed his distinctive style and how it intersects with his musical mind, his exciting multimedia exhibition at the Portland Art Museum, and, well, he just happens to be Hello Print Friends' first ever musical guest. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to hear the music with John Hitchcock. Hi, John. How's it going? Hey, how are you doing, Miranda? Good. It's going well. Feeling good. (laughs) Welcome, welcome, welcome. You and your guitar. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, it's my little safety blanket at this moment, so I can have it sitting here while I'm uh, talking. This is uh, a hello print friend first, and I am so here for it. (laughs) So here for it. So. So, John, as I, I mentioned when I reached out, you know, you're someone that I've really I've wanted to talk to almost from day one. And it's it's funny. I remember when I was sitting down, I was making the wish list with Tim and it was like, who should we talk to? And it was like John Hitchcock. And I said, I need to get better at doing this before I talk to John. <laughs> because I just I, I just really it, admire your work so much and I just really was like I want to make sure I don't want John to be a guinea pig <laughs> oh that's okay I'm I, I, I'm good you know but yeah. at all. oh thank you yeah thank you very so, much I, I appreciate um, it yeah so when we were doing this round I was like yes yes okay we've, we've got our equipment we've got our 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 everything kind of you know streamlined it's time it's time to talk to John so oh I've yeah I've known your work for for a while but in case anyone out there hasn't had the pleasure, would you please introduce yourself, let people know who you are, where you are, and what you do? All right. So, so 
uh, I am a musician. I'm an artist, uh, professor, printmaker, and I've been do I guess playing music since I was 15 years old and still playing it to this day. And I've been teaching printmaking um, at University of Wisconsin-Madison for the past 20, 21 years. And I, let's see, I'm primarily, like I said, I primarily do screen printing and I work with the multiple in relationship to music, video, live performance and installation work. Very cool. And I think we're definitely going to dive into all of those different elements a bit later on, but... Let's get a little more background on you. And can you tell us where you grew up and what role art played in that part of your life? So I grew up on Comanche tribal lands in Lawton, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And uh, it's in a very unique space. It's it's the area that I grew up uh, off of Highway 49 next to the Wichita Mountains and Fort Sill Lawton. And Fort Sill is one of the largest field artillery training bases in the United States. Oh, wow. And so growing up and witnessing the the militarized military kind of state of, of, of the space and place. And my grandfather worked at Fort Sill. He worked on tanks and helicopters. My father ended up at Fort Sill um, in the military uh, during the Korean War. So I grew up with the notion of this in my, you know, face all the time, Fort Sill and its relationship to the community. And Wichita Mountains is a wildlife refuge that has uh, deer, elk, um, prairie dogs. And it's just an amazing uh, space that I would go to as a kid and, and go there to um, witness nature and uh, climb Mountain Scott, which is an important mountain there to the Kiowa and Comanche people and all the indigenous people in that region. And and so it was a, a really, I still go back all the time. My, my, my family lives there and, and I've got cousins and relatives. And so it's, it's an amazing uh, space, mm. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And then so for art, like were you a kid who was drawing all the time? Did you have artists in the family? Um, what was your relationship to the arts as a, as a young kid? So I, the arts for me, I, I was introduced to drawing and and basically um, from my grandmother, my kaku mm. is my Comanche grandmother. And so she taught me how to draw uh, in relationship to her making beadwork. And so that was the, the first time actually being close to a sense of, of meaning within a creative way. And, and so I would sit at the table, her beadwork table, and, and basically work on designs and patterns and lines and shapes. And she would actually have me um, go outside and draw flowers and and look at um she had a really big rose garden so i would look mm. at those roses and and look at the the line work on them and the shapes and i didn't even know like she was teaching me design and thinking skills that i didn't even understand i was learning observation drawing right. and and then i'd come back in and she'd have these patterns that she's working from and she went to boarding school and at riverside indian school and and at that school she met other tribal people from all over the, the United States. And they she learned different beadwork techniques and drawing techniques. And I, I didn't realize that. But as a kid, she was kind of um, introducing me to that. So she would have me look at the beadwork she made. And I would replicate those, again, observation drawing. And then on the other end of it, she'd say, all right, I want you to design your own pattern, create whatever mm, you want. Wow. And so those skills of thinking and 
using line and shape and color was uh, extremely important. Um, I know that color has been a, a component that I'm really using a lot in my work. And, I've, and during the COVID moment, I kind of revisited and looked at her beadwork that she made and, and thinking about how color in our lives and how important it is. And, and so a lot of the kind of theoretical thinking behind it was taught by her. She would say, look at the day colors and look at the night colors. Mm -hmm. and, and so a lot of the regalia that, that uh, tribal people wear, um, they have different symbolic meanings in them. And so as a kid, I would basically get this information from my grandmother. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you grew up with someone teaching you a, a master class in visual literacy, <laughs> looking at perspective and looking at colors. I mean, all of this is what a beautiful thing to be exposed to as, as a young person and as a young creative person. Yeah. And, my, and so also in, in school, in high school, um, I was, uh, I, I took um, art classes in uh, middle school and high school from my aunt who was Juanita Pataponi, and she was teaching us about the different artists that were uh, indigenous artists that I, you know, I never knew about. I'd see some of them in the community. Uh, Woody Wachitaker was one of them, uh, Tim Sawpity, but she brought in Comanche visiting artists, uh, Cynthia Clay and one, uh, uh, to speak with us and uh, Wakea Bradley, which is uh, Cynthia's mother. And it was amazing because I was hearing, you know, firsthand some of the things my grandmother would talk about right from these other elders that were speaking about art. And so I never really, you know, the first time I went to a museum was at Fort Sill, the military base, and it was a military museum. It was Geronimo's guard cell house. And that was, was bizarre because it housed the remnants of Geronimo and the Chiricahua people, the Comanche people, and um, looking at that and historically how that shapes um, our culture here in, in America and other parts of the world, and looking at that, you know, this place was established as an Indian wars fort, and it was, um, it was a place as a kid that we would go to to learn about history firsthand, and so that was a, a unique time, and, and learning about it, like, in grade school all the way into high school. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so at that point, did you know that you were going to go be an artist and go to art school with all the, the artistic influence you were exposed to? Well, my, well, my Aunt Peggy, um, she, which uh, she would say uh, as a kid, you know, you're going to be an artist because mm. I drew all the time. And my um, so I would draw her, her actually her son, which my uh, uh, cousin, Eddie Nakwadi, he gave me my first sketchbook. And, and I remember all right, trigger warning. It's a little, little, a uh, little bit of violence here. Mm -hmm. I remember um, going out hunting. I grew up in a hunting family, so my brother and my cousins and my dad they all hunted and deer, and also we trapped coyotes as well. And I remember being a kid going out with them with a 22 rifle, and they wanted me to shoot a bird. My brother did, and so I uh, aimed at that bird, and I actually hit it, and it. I couldn't believe I was like, I'm like a 10 or 11 year old and freaked out about it. And I remember going to pick up the bird and I picked it up and I moved its little head and mm -hmm. I just Im immediately started crying. Mm -hmm. And it was so painful to, to be a part of that situation. But my cousin, Eddie, he just reached out and he hugged me really hard. He gave me a really big hug and said, it's okay. It's not your way. It's okay. 
It's not your way. And I just remembered from that day on when he said, you know, that's not your thing. You're going to be, you're, 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 you're destined for something else. And he gave me a sketchbook and that sketchbook turned into multiple drawings and it turned into the sitting with my grandmother at the beading table and she scatter her beads everywhere. And then I would start drawing and, and I'd get that reinforced through Juanita Pataponi when she would talk to us in, in, in school. And I remember in high school, uh, I had opportunity to, uh, my senior year, um, to be recruited by the university of Oklahoma mm -hmm. to play football. And, of all things, I'm like, I'm like, I'm in a band. I started playing when I was 15. I was always playing in bands through high school. And then my football career started to think about that as like, I could be a football player, but my brother-in-law who was a semi-pro football player and his brother's brother played for the Houston Oilers were like, don't, don't do this. You know, they're, they're offering you a, a full scholarship, but they're basically, you're going to be, you know, beaten to a pulp oh. and you're not going to uh, start. You're just a redshirted for your first semester or year and you'll probably drop out. And I'm like, whoa. And around that time, um, Kathy Leontis, who's my printmaking, first printmaking professor, I met her at a, one of those high school scholastic meets. She came and saw my work, my drawings, and she offered a $500 scholarship to go to Cameron University in Lawton, Oklahoma. Mm. And, and so that was the beginning of, of, of a real thoughtful um, idea of art in Cameron and, and studying with, with Kathy and she introduced me to lithography and that's my first love. It was like yeah, litho. Yeah. And I was blown away by the process and the kind of almost this very uh, ritualistic spiritual approach. And I mean, stones was everything. I love stones. And, and so the, the idea of grinding a stone and the, the patience and time that it takes to go into working on it. And, and Kathy was, an incredible uh, lithographer and she uh, studied at Texas Tech in Lubbock with uh, Linwood Krennic and Terry Morrow's there. Yeah. That's so interesting because I, I feel like so many people who have a connection to drawing uh, just really fall for litho and that, you know, because there's that immediacy and then the magic um, that you get with litho. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised if you, you know, grew up drawing and having this really creative background that litho was kind of you know as you said your first love right that it was my got, first love yeah. yeah it's definitely it was, and, and I'm glad that you know if I would have basically went on the route of, of some um, sports career which I was not that great at anyway but mm. it, that would have been no deal uh but growing yeah. up on a farm, you know, you're just, it's very versatile. You're doing, it was a, a home kind of uh, um, farm, not a, not a major producing one, but just a family kind of farm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and, and having that, that experience with your cousin too of, of, you know, it's just, it's just such a beautiful story. And I think one that I wish, you know, more young men were exposed to, you know, because I think it story easily could have gone and I've heard versions of it quite often that go along the lines of like and then they told me I had to man up and then you know I got the the messaging that like it wasn't okay to have the feelings and that it was just so beautiful that you had people in your family who could just see you for you and say like okay like this isn't going to be John's thing and that's fine and I wonder if like that also kind of set you up for being able to be like oh I don't have to follow this 
archetypal like football player, you know, kind of like um, journey either. I can still go my own direction because it's okay just to be who I am. Yeah, I, it's the first time I actually told that story too. I was thinking about when talking up to you of like um, the I, I've never ever told that story before, and oh. and uh, um, just to a few close friends. But it's always important to me to think about how my family some of my family members that were really close how they did you know really help guide me that I didn't even realize until looking back I mean my grandfather he gave me a cow when I was um, probably in middle school mm-hmm. or maybe actually the end of grade school and going into middle school and so that mm-hmm. cow by the, by the time I, I was a senior uh, that cow turned into multiple cows and so we <laughs> sold you know multiples multiples began so <laughs> I sold those and that paid for my uh, um, my college at oh, Cameron wow. through yeah. cattle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's such a such a, a, a farm kid story. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's but, so great. But what me think what made me think of um, my cousin Eddie is, is my my Aunt Peggy, her is she's the one who always said, and my Aunt Mary, both of them, they're like, You're gonna be an artist. You're the artist. You're going to go to college for this and you will succeed at it. And so hearing that um, voice from them as a, as a young kid, like very little, it was always in my head. So I never, ever thought about being any of these other things that, that um, society pushes upon you and mm-hmm. sort of how we're in a, a place where these decisions are kind of made by parents. And, and my parents and grandparents were very open to, to thinking about um, different ways of approaching life. Yeah, yeah. And so then you you got exposed to to printmaking and you fell for litho. But as you said sort of at the top of the interview, you're really I think known as a as a screen printer. You you use a ton of that in your current practice. So I'd love just to kind of hear the story of maybe just the development of your style because you do have such a strong like totally like solidly formed aesthetic in what you do and I I always one of the things I hear from younger artists is that they're just like how do I do that you know how do I find my voice and so um if you could kind of tell us that story oh thank you thank you for those words um I guess grad school and so when I went to grad school um well how I got into screen printing is I really wanted to do screen printing in undergrad but there was no capability because I played in bands and that was the thing to have posters and actually the first posters I made like rock and roll for our metal band posters were lithographs which are not you know that that's used in the industry but but I was learning fine art uh, printmaking and and so when I went to Dallas Texas was approaching being in these bands I almost quit undergrad Mm. I my last semester my cousins and my uh, family they're like you don't do this my band I was playing with moved there and and so I wanted to really pursue this music career, and I ended up um, moving there eventually and, and being in a band in, in Texas for three years. 
And from there, I, I just wasn't working out. So I decided that I needed to go to grad school, went back to Kathy Leontis, and she um, helped me kind of prepare and get my slides together. And I applied to several schools, but I got accepted into Texas Tech in Lubbock. And I talked to Linwood Krennic, who was the printmaking professor, the primarily of screen printing. And he's like, you know, uh, we only do water-based screen printing, you know, and I'm like, what? And but Terry Morrow, who also taught litho, um, embraced me as well. But screen printing really happened at Texas Tech, and so the development of working there. Um, um, I know that you're you're uh, uh, the the screen printing biennial and all of the current um, type of print exhibitions mm-hmm. that are out there. But back in the '90s, screen printing. Who Linwood Krennic was really developing a platform with Color Print USA, which is a very important. Um, early days of screen printing and color in prints. Before that, it was all about black and white prints. And so in the 80s and 90s, he was moving it in in more in a a sense of America, seeing how color operates within our our culture. He was using uh, Color Print USA as a platform. And so being in grad school from 93 to say 97, somewhere around there, I, I got to meet several visiting artists that would come in and make prints. And Dan Kiosk, I remember, was one of uh, screen printers at the University of Oklahoma, uh, meeting him. Uh, K- Karen Kuntz was mm-hmm. uh, incredible, meeting her in grad school. And, and she, I remember, you know, just uh, being with them and, and her talking about, you need to make small drawings, little drawings. I'm huh. like, what? And so she grabbed a sketchbook and said, look, make these thumbnail sketches. And and I was at the time making um, multi-layered screen prints um, because the direction of in grad school, our professors were really wanting us to audition. And I really wanted to kind of move out into installation and performative work because being a musician and then wanting to do things in a kind of a stage sense, I started to screen print on objects. And Linwood Krennic basically said, hey, you know, before you go there, I want you to prove that you can addition prints. Hmm. So over the weekend, every weekend, uh, Gary Brown's a good friend of mine. He used to teach in Texas uh, and Laredo. He, him and I and Eddie Grigsby, another printmaker in, in Lubbock, Texas, we would stay up all, you know, every night over the weekend working on layers and layers mm-hmm. and layers mm-hmm. and layers of color. And so through a few, like a good semester, two semesters, a full year of that, finally Linwood said, you know, you want to try this installation thing, go for it. And so it's just interesting to, to go through this process and learn about what color does, what layering does, what shapes do, multiple screens and work and, you know, work ethics and being in there all the time working in the studio. So that built a, a large amount of, of um, visuals that I was able to cut up and reorganize and start working on installations. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that um, training and such intensive layering, uh, you know, absolutely must have kind of, you know, gotten in your bones or something, because you can see that in the uh, screen prints that you produce now. I mean, they're just these explosions of color and movement and shape, but they're also um, readable, discernible. And I think that like, that's a really difficult line to walk for a lot of artists is like to get that like controlled chaos kind of controlled, a feeling. <laughs> controlled chaos is definitely the, the my theme in my head. And I, I think that comes back to uh, music and uh, that, that first time actually making an installation and and, you know, you go to a crit and 
you everybody hangs their prints on the wall and we had about seven or eight grad students in printmaking and photography and and I one day I walked in and I laid down my print my work and it was on a blanket and then it had a, a um, small bucket of water a ladle and also some small objects that I picked up at like a curio shop and they were all images that had to do with derogatory images of indigenous people and then I screen printed on them uh, uh, Gaku said and which my grandmother said and so I was using the language and combining it but I was screen printing it on a military blanket and so there's a lot of conceptual references in there mm-hmm. and so the, the Lynn would love the idea of the, of the conceptual components and and Rick Dingus was another photographer I worked with and they were really instrumental in kind of pushing me to think about the direction of how do you speak um, from the voice you're coming from and look at this in the world we're moving into. And at the time, uh, print culture was all about, you know, flat prints. And so installation wasn't happening. And so it was uh, exciting for me to be doing this and, yeah. and like the, and being able to kind of break, a, break the mold for our little crew of people. But I just didn't realize like out in the world, you know, we're out in the middle of Texas, the internet didn't exist then. And and taking my first trip to New York and seeing, you know, other artists work and, and then going down to Texas, uh, uh, Fort Worth and seeing uh, Terry Allen's installations and him using neon and using printmaking. He's also famous for being a musician from Lubbock, Texas. And so that that I guess that tornado or that circulation or that chaos of being around music scenes for so long and looking at how the music could combine with the visual art and bring them together. And I don't think, you know, I'm at a place where I finally have gotten to that place where I'm just now starting to understand it. Mm, Yeah. Well, and and having, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds kind of like from telling your story that like your identity as a musician may have kind of fully formed in your own mind's eye, maybe even before being a visual artist. And so I wonder if that kind of informed the way you went about visual art with that eye to performance and experience of audience, which of course you you feel so much more intently when as a musician, you're creating the work in real time with someone there. And of course, visual arts, for the most part, we have this strange experience where after all the work is over, then it's you know, received. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, being a, a musician, um, we, you know, like way back, like playing clubs, like at 15 going and playing in a club, I had to have my grandmother and my grandfather, or my grandmother and my mother would actually come to the show at 15 to, to so I could go in and play these shows. And, and then growing up doing that, but then looking at all the craziness of of, of of club itself, like the neon and the posters and all that information in there. I, I, my first job was working in a bar at, in, in Lawton, a place called Hard Rocks, and I worked the back door. I was a bouncer, like 18, 19 year old huh. working in the back door. I couldn't even drink, but yeah. I was <laughs> I was there to, to get people out. And then we'd play the stage. But the 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 ability to look at um, how like making music was always separate. Like my goal was to succeed and be a, like, a, you know, by now be some famous musician. And, that, you know, as you were uh-huh. 15 year old, like Metallica was, you're, you're gunning for them. You're of gunning course. for us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so at one point when we were opening up for a band called Pantera, which was become a major band. And yeah. I don't know. If, and so Dime Dar- Dimeback Daryl, I knew him 
well back in the 80s because we would open up for them and we'd end up at their hotel room at night playing music till morning, like just playing guitar and riffs. Mm -hmm. And so that notion of practice and riffs and, you know, so I, I always saw myself separate and of, of, as a musician to being an artist. And I always wanted to make it, you know, we opened up for Tool once and oh that, that was, that was the major things as a youth. And, and so I always thought, okay, so I'm not going to make it as a musician. And at one point in Dallas in probably 93, 92, I just realized, you know, I failed. I failed as a musician and I'm going to separate that part of my life and move into the other part, which is still being an artist, but a visual artist. And that's when I went to grad school. And Yeah. Had- I mean, I feel like, I feel like the word fail is so harsh. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it just, I, I but it, cause you, you still, um, obviously music is still so much a part of what you do and, and, and part of your practice. And I don't know, I guess I feel like if, if it's Metallica or failure, that's sort of a really rough, <laughs> rough um, standard to which to hold anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think embracing failure is important to learn. Okay. I, mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest lesson anyone can, can understand. And, and for me, it's the hardest thing to realize like, okay, there's positive things that can come out of failure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think looking at the, the positive in that and having perseverance and fortunate to be brought up in a, a community that gave me the strength and perseverance and support. So having a support network around on you to allow you to fail. And mm-hmm. I think coming to terms with that and going, you know, I'm going to fail and I'm going to go to grad school now. So yeah. it was like a, it was a good failure. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you're in a good place in life, if like grad school can be your plan B, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never, I mean, I wanted to make art and be an artist, but it was, my plan was to, you know, succeed as an artist now. It's like, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. And yeah. And teaching came during the end, the later part of grad school. And I, I was not expecting to be a, a, a professor at all. I was mm-hmm. uh, on the road to possibly teaching. Um, I, I was teaching high school kids at the, in Lubbock, Texas, alongside of teaching grad students, or excuse me, teaching as a grad student. And so combining that idea of like, okay, this teaching thing's fun. And, and I really got into it. So yeah. I, I fell in love with it. And, and then I eventually ended up at um, University of Minnesota Morris in uh, 98, a long time ago, to mm-hmm. 2001. And then ended up in Madison in 2001 and been here ever since. So. Oh. Oh, very cool. And so I'd, I'd like to, to switch gears a bit and talk about um, a recent exhibition that you had at the Portland Museum of Art, because I feel like from what I read about it, um, I would have loved to see it very much, but I was not not in the country for the dates that for the year that it was up. But um, but yeah, because I feel like it, it could be a neat way to kind of um, kind of tie together in a really uh concrete or illustrative way the different parts of your practice that you're talking about so it was it was called um and i hope i, I say this right it was bury the hatchet uh prayer for my bobby oh good good bobby bobby yeah so bobby's your uh, close uh, friend and oh. it's a, a really close uh, a, a good 
uh, Heights too is a my like brother, my really close friend Jason Cutnose. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, and when he passed, well, bef- way back, I I love to go back to Oklahoma all the time and see family. But I recorded him speaking about um, Cutthroat Gap and the various massacres that had happened in the area we grew up in, and mm. and and the Cutthroat Gap's just about a half a mile from his house, and this is places we would go to as kids. The area, that area, not specifically Cutthroat Gap, but around there, Saddle Mountain, all these important places. And Scott Mamaday, you know, has written an incredible book about that area, is Kiowa from that place. And mm-hmm. so we grew up around music and drums and like uh, drumming at the powwows and the songs. And so that was very important. So back to Bury the Hatchet, I wanted, I was thinking, you know, I've always wanted to bring together the spoken word, Jason's stories. My grandfather, I have recordings of him speaking about um, the Comanches at the turn of the century in the mm. 1800s, the 1900s. And I have, he recorded this uh, Thoheen, this 101-year-old man that that uh, he recorded his story on Reel the Reel. And so I interpreted that into a digital format. And so I have this, this awesome recording of Grandpa speaking. And so I've been using that as well and bringing it in with Jason talking about um, the components of the area. And I've been in a finally at a, a mature place in a band that I love playing with, um, The Stolen Sea, Nate Mang and The Stolen Sea. So we are... I, I came to them one day and said, hey, I got this idea. You know, I really want to um, bring together my music and my visual art and create these stories. Mm. And they're like, oh, 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 all right. This sounds awesome. <laughs> this this tell us a little more. And so I was at the Missoula Art Museum um, that, that particular year. And I was um, visiting artists at the University of Missoula. And I was making a series of prints there. And the gallery, the museum director came to see the prints. And they asked me, like, if we had a, a space um, available, what would you do in that space? Like, what kind of work? What would you want to do? And so I drew this napkin drawing and handed it to them. And it had these neon images of the buffalo. It had a stage set up with the band. Mm -hmm. And I said, I really want to do this project called Bury the Hatchet. And she looked at me and looked at uh, the drawing. And 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 the drawing was really kind of one of those quick sketches you draw and you like students hand you and and you look at them, you're like, oh, that's okay. But what do you really want to make? And it's so... I refined the drawing, showed a, a be- the, 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 the team there a better drawing, and they okayed it. And so within the year, we had built the stage, uh, situated, made the prints, um, made an album, mm-hmm. included an opera singer, Caitlin Mead uh, from New York. And it was uh, mind-boggling and, and to me to be able to finally bring together the visuals, the story, um, printmaking, uh, and all of it together in one venue. Yeah, yeah. And so you said like there was prints, there was neon, um, and of course the stage. I, I read something about it saying that it's kind of like the Buffalo Bill Wild West show, kind of a theme almost, you know, in this, um, you know, like Old West meets contemporary and, and in a way to sort of invite people to, uh, you know, re-examine histories and explore like the um the actual kind of truth behind the myth of the west which i feel looms so large 
in American culture. I, I can feel it having moved back to Santa Fe, you know, all the cowboy kind of stuff around here, um, which is such a part of our identity, but of course is, is so often told from just like only a colonial perspective, um, only a white perspective. And, and so it seems like with what, with what you were doing, it was like um, a retelling, but like almost like using the tools of the original story. I don't know. I, I didn't get to see it, but that's what it kind of seemed like. You're, you're totally on it. Like the the colonial kind of perspective that is part of the genocide that we live in, that we're around, and and we we I grew up questioning that from day one. That's mm. from growing up on Comanche lands, on tribal lands, around indigenous people, and being an indigenous person, and and those conversations conversations are always had and it's in to have that conversation about in particular cutthroat gap because that was a a, a, a massacre that happened with indigenous people against indigenous people so mm. that that was a heavy conversation but it's also one that that um we're you know we're all questioning and talking about and speaking about as as um people and i think the wild west perspective brings it right back to where you're at santa fe and mm -hmm. albuquerque and my aunts lived in albuquerque and my my aunt peggy i mentioned earlier works at, worked at the indian health services uh, santa fe and so we would go back and forth from lawton to albuquerque and santa fe all the time in the summertime so on that drive on the way to albuquerque you would drive by these really um, derogatory visuals mm. that were neon signs, which some of them still exist that that would have derogatory images of native people as signage and um, on the highway. And so that was as a kid seeing it, I always thought this would be really amazing to ask questions about it, but to articulate that through a visual experience in artwork. And I think that's over time, like I finally have come to a place where I'm able to address this with a group of other creative people, the musicians, and working with awesome museum people and gallery people. And that that show traveled and went to the Portland Art Museum. And and so it traveled to a few other venues. And so just building that body of work, that took, a, a to me, a lifetime of thinking and making. And and finally, it's coming together to where I finally made something. I'm like, oh, wow, hey, I finally did the thing I wanted to do, but I couldn't do in grad school. And that mm. was over 25, 24 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's that sounds really wonderful. Like, it must have been so kind of cathartic to finally see it. Um, come to life. Yeah, yeah it, it was. It, I mean, we we had a we were really kind of star eyed, like, oh, my God, we're going to we went and did a little tour. We, we actually the band went to Missoula and we played uh, some shows there, um, not only as with Nate Mang and a Stolen Sea, but we also played the Bury the Hatchet album. We played some of the songs. Caitlin Mead flew in from New York. She performed um, with us. Uh, her operatic voice is amazing. And so we were planning a second round of that in Portland and we were just setting up the the venues along the way we wanted to do a mini tour from mm -hmm. from Madison all the way to Portland and go up to Seattle and while I was hanging the exhibition it was Feb January of 2000 and right then on the way back on that flight uh, COVID had already hit the United States in Seattle when I was on the plane there was only maybe four of us on the plane mm. 
And we came, I came back to Madison. And then by March, the school was in process of uh, figuring out how to shut down um, and reopen with Zoom. And that all happened over uh, spring break time. So our, our, we never really got off the ground with the project because uh, COVID hit, but we yeah. were still able to move the, the work, you know, but the actual live performances were were cut. You know, we it, it was it was a it's been a unique experience. Yeah, for sure. Um, since you have your guitar, is there mm. a song that you could play off the Bury the Hatchet album that I well, you know, I know uh, you're you're missing your opera singer. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find my slide. I'm just gonna play a little something. I don't know if it's off of Barry the Hatchet because I kind of need everybody here, but. Was a little something lovely that was lovely ah uh, i should i'm gonna ask all my guests to bring musical instruments on now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that'd be awesome you play um i don't know um i you know got to take viola lessons and piano lessons as a kid but i never had the dedication to make anything of it so, yeah so, i don't i don't read music either i just play i've mm. never read i don't i have no idea about um, notes and such i've just been playing with people for so long but the back like to me music and uh, that color question i was thinking about that you asked earlier about we, we find our voice you know eventually and i think that's the big question as an artist as we're we're working in life and looking at how we're going to interpret our lives but color has always been a foundation in mind from way back i even did a whole series of work without color that was more neutrals and black and white and silvers and but to me, color and color thinking is exactly like music and music thinking. You, you've got um, tones that, that you're working with that possibly um, tones and shapes and forms and repetition. And it's always there. And I think that that's a part of it for me. Like I could, if I'm going to be droning on something. You got high pitch. Those pitches are like putting really nice highlights on a work. If you're layering a print, you're putting on a highlight. But if you're, you know, want to get some, you want to bottom into it down a flat. So I'm putting down a flat. I'm thinking like a musician that I'm putting down the rhythm. So that rhythm is the background and that's the thing that holds everything together. And so thinking like a musician and looking at how if I'm on stage, I've got four or three other people with me, we're all working in unison to play together. That's like a collaborative shop. If you're in a mm. print shop, you've got to be thinking about um, who you're with, who you're working with and, and how you're trying to you know make a, a fine art print. That is so cool and it makes complete sense like <laughs> I've never thought about it that way before but it absolutely true and I think particularly I can see it like when you were 
describing it, I could like see one of your prints coming to life, like <laughs> the base layer and the tones and the way the colors are interacting. It's just like, yeah, that works really, really well. That's so cool. <laughs> do you, yeah, do go you, ahead, sorry. Do you, I was gonna say, do you explain it that way to your to your students at all? Because that, yeah. I, uh, so I'm I'm kind of you know uniquely like I've always kept them separate, but mm. now that I I have all my I have equipment and a studio in my basement, but I also have equipment up at the university where my studio's at, and so I'll every once in a while, not at the beginning of the season, but midway, I'll bring in the um, the lap steel and I'll start playing stuff, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa! I didn't <laughs> know you played, and and it always draws interest to the students to see which ones are music. And then sometimes I've done jam sessions with them and play, you know, play little mini gigs and such. And so that's that's always the exciting thing is this sort of surprise like, oh, I didn't know you did that. And and that's the same way with a student. You're like, wow, I didn't know you played the viola or mm-hmm. um, cello. And then they bring it in and we can jam out. And sometimes we would do it in class, too. So it, it was it's a nice experience. But I never that's kind of the first time I really explained it like that, like just now, like with uh, relating the color and line and shape and sound and tone and yeah. repetition. Of course. Yeah, it makes absolute sense, though. I mean, speaking of of your teaching practice and um, your life at Madison, I want to make sure we have a chance to chat a little bit about SGCI, which is going to be in Madison um, in March. And we we looked up the date. March 16th through the 19th. March 16th through the 19th. (laughs) I was looking it up, too. I'm like, oh, my God, where's my SGC notes? Oh, no. Totally. And I just... um, I think SGCI is pretty well known out there, but if let's say this podcast, cause it's going to um, come out, I think in early February. So let's say there's, so there still would be definitely time to register and get tickets and that kind of thing. So if there's a, a printmaker sitting somewhere, um, you know, in, I don't know, Texas and they're saying, Oh, I've never heard of this before. How would you describe what uh, the Southern Graphics Council International Conferences are um, and, you know, why it's so exciting that it's going to be in Madison. Well, it's it's, a, it's definitely a festivity of, um, of various printmakers really geeking out together mm-hmm. on, on print culture. And I, I've always loved the experience of going to SGCI and um, being in all levels of being on panels, going to the shows and such. But it, it's such a warming and loving feeling to see like-minded voices and seeing us together, you know, our own little group of people. And we're, we're not little, we're big. That's the thing. You, like, you realize you're like, oh, Printmaking's everywhere. It is national. It is international. And in you know, we have some uh, artists com- that that are doing an exhibition that are from New Zealand. Maori artists. We have artists from all over, you know, the United States that's going to be at the conference. And so I think it's a, a wonderful time to you know meet and greet and be with your people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I remember when I first went to one. I think my first one was in San Francisco, so like 2013 maybe. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, these are all my nerds like me, you know, like it really it just it felt sort of, you know, 
kind of liberating to be in a space where it's like, I don't have to start three steps behind telling you what I'm going to do. Like, I feel like as a printmaker, there's so many conversations that begin with, okay, do you remember making potato cut prints in high school? You know, like, like you have to like try and like bring people up to speed before you can even begin to start dialoguing about what you do and why you love it. And at the conferences like SGCI, it's just, it's just straight to the good times. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've learned how to be a better printmaker through SGCI. Mm. And that's be- just because of the camaraderie and the influences and the, the, the people you meet there that are lifelong in, in some sense that you, you know, I remember meeting Ruth Ann Gadali in Texas, uh, Austin, SGCI years ago in nine, uh, 2000 or 2001. And I was, uh, we've been lifelong friends ever since. And um, it, it's, it's just amazing, like, um, who you meet at these conferences and how long these relationships happen. And it, it's, it's, it's mind boggling and mind blowing and mind worthy to be at SGCI. Yeah. I mean, I met my husband in SGCI, so we, yeah, we we met in yeah. Atlanta and got married in Vegas. So, dang, that's awesome. That's, so, who knows what could happen? All you lonely hearts, printmakers out there. That's yeah. right. You gotta. Yeah, you, you you never know. Yeah. You never know. And so, yeah, it's, it's a conference that lasts like, you know, three kind of four days and there's um, lectures and there's demonstrations and there's social events and there's exhibitions. And it's just it's just completely immersive printmaking. So, um, yeah. Definitely look it up, and it'll, it's hosted um, by your university this year. Yeah, it's yeah. at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Uh, Faisal Abdullah, who's the president of SGCI, uh, is a professor here and also associate dean, and um, and Emily Arthur. Uh, who's a professor in printmaking and chair of the printmaking area, and Adriana Barrios, who works at the the um, School of Human Ecology Design Studies program, and I are the steering committee, and so we're super excited. And I, I think one of the shows to not you know to the, the not miss exhibitions is seeing is there's a show called Autobahn. Uh, uh, Autobahn Robert Har- Har- Harvell. Harvell. God, I, I can't even speak. I'm so excited about. I'm so excited about SGC. I'm ready. So Autobahn, Robert Havel, uh, Jr. and the Birds of America at the Chazen Museum. That's going to be an incredible show that that's it's these incredible giant big pr- prints of, of, of Autobahns. Yeah. Um, Enrique Shigoya is going to be doing a solo show as well as Mel Chen. Mel Chen at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Arts. If you have, you may know Mel Chen as a conceptual artist and a visual thinker that is, you know, MacArthur Award winner. Um, this will be his first time ever, us, you know, collecting a whole collection of his works on paper that's going to be in this exhibition at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Arts. And then the, the Chazen uh, Pressing Innovations, which is looking at several collaborative print shops across the Midwest. So it's, it's, which would be Landfall Press, Vermilion Editions, Island Press, Tandem Press, and High Point Center for Printmaking. So those are just a few uh, exhibitions happening, but there's going to be some incredible panels and um, presentations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. That sounds amazing. Um, And really excited because, of course, we didn't... um, didn't have the one that was supposed to be in Puerto Rico and uh yeah so it's been it's been a couple of years since we could all gather together but um as we were talking about a little bit 
you know, kind of before we started recording, there's a lot of very hopeful graphs showing that, um, you know, mid-March will be a pretty safe time to be out in the world again. And yeah, I, I can't wait for it. Totally. So, yeah, we have a, you know, the, the, the institution, the university is a really, it's def- masks are required and the vaccination rate is a really high percentage um, in Madison in particular, in Wisconsin, particularly Madison. So, we're, you know, we're, we start back classes next week face to face, and we've been face to face for over a year and a half, and mm-hmm. and it's been very successful without a large amount of you know COVID situations, and so we're very hopeful and excited that we're finally going to be able to rejoice each other as print geeks. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and then and then speaking of COVID, you know, like. Yeah. How has that been for you? And I know that you've actually even, you know, made a bit of work inspired by your your all of our new circumstance of 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 Zoom life. And I'd love to hear the story of kind of channeling that energy and that transition that so many people found to just kind of weigh them down creatively and, and found like they became in a space where they were like, I can't make anything. But you were actually making work based on Zoom meetings. Yeah, I was. Um, I so I, at one point I was the associate dean of the arts at uh, the School of Education. So Madison, uh, the art department is in the School of Ed, and we're the only art department in the United States that's in a School of Ed. So it's very unique. And so I was in this dean position, and so in that position, uh, my last year and a half is when COVID hit, and I was at a billion Zoom meetings every day every morning. And at the time I had a studio set up in the basement. I had my area set up with my computer and it's on a little um, stand, like a keyboard stand. And I have this big table. It's a drawing area. And I had series of prints I've been working on, but couldn't really go to the university to work on them. So I had them here and I would draw and, and actually print on them outside, um, a makeshift print area, screen printing on them. And I made so much work during the COVID time, during this time. So I was basically in a Zoom meeting, listening and taking my notes. And then I draw and draw and draw. And so my whole days, I made so much work. I ended up doing a solo show at the Portrait Society Gallery in Milwaukee. And our dean, Dean Hess, and I, she went with me to see the exhibition. And she was so like, oh, my God, you made these during the meetings? I'm like, yeah, I sure did. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) It was awesome awesome because it put a, a sense of um, hope in my um, day because I knew each minute that I could draw my way out. I, I could get in here and work, think, listen to the Zoom meeting, participate when needed to be. And also, I think as thinkers, we we operate, you know, uniquely, uh, we're uniquely situated as, as artists and thinkers, because sometimes it takes us to be map us to map it out on paper and to analyze this through shapes and designs. And mm-hmm. I go back to my grandmother, those teachings of here, here's a piece of paper, she'd hand me a tear off a little sheet, little uh, paper bag and say, all right, I want you to put down your thoughts. And so I'm basically doing the same thing. If our dean is talking about, you know, this project and we got to have funding for this and this and this and this, and, and I'm listening, but all I'm doing is drawing marks and shapes and articulating through visual imagery and icons, what she's saying, how I can understand it through color and shape. Yeah. 
Oh, I feel like that is such a wonderful note to kind of wrap up on. You've beautifully, you know, tied it back to the beginning and, and your early influences. And, you know, now here we are in this absolutely unprecedented time trying to find ways to, to be creative and, and still thrive. And yeah, you can still still um, draw on what grandma taught you. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Miranda. Thank you for for um, this opportunity to speak with you. And and it's it's I've always uh, admired the podcast and what you're doing and what's been going on in the community that's out there and hearing these voices. And it's it's wonderful that you're so supportive of that. And and I say, Ura, aho, thank you. Thank oh, you. thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for for joining me. And and can you please tell people um, where can they find you and see your beautiful work and hear some music and just know what's going on in your world? Uh, hybridpress.net and Instagram would be, I guess, Hybrid Press. So it's everything's kind of Hybrid Press. Excellent. It's yeah. really easy for me to, to put in the show notes then. Uh, hybridpress.net and Instagram.net. I don't know. At, at, excuse me, at Hybrid Press. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, yeah. John. And um, thank you for being my first musical guest. Amazing <laughs> treat. And um, yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll try and be getting this guy out um, in early February so people can still think about coming to visit Madison and um, yeah, CSGCI. And I'll look forward to meeting you in person then. Yay! Well, I'm, I'm excited to see you and see everyone there. So. Have a good time coming up. Thank you. Thank you, John. I will talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, who digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with our guests. And if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who will leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did, and no joke, it really does make an impact in this podcasting world. Join me again next week, my guest will be Jack Lemon. Jack has created collaborative print editions with Kara Walker, Christo, Judy Chicago, Sola Witt, and so many more highly respected and influential artists of the last five decades. Jack went to school during a time when lithography was fading from the world of fine art in the United States, and he had a ringside seat and a pivotal role in its renaissance in the 1960s and 70s. He's also worked with other printmaking greats such as June Wayne and Ken Tyler before setting up his own studio, so believe me when I say, print friends, you will not want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.